0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 2nd of October 2023 And this is episode 317. On today's programme, author and historian Dr Frances Hurd talks about her research into gay officers, the law, and their experiences in the British Army during the Great War. Frances spoke to me from her home in Sussex. Francis, welcome back to the podcast for the third time, I believe. Um, and today we're going to talk about a really interesting subject. But before we start, could you tell us about yourself and how you became interested in, in quotes queer officers in the British Army during the Great War?
1: Uh, right. Okay. Well, I um, developed an interest in the First World War um, about 10 years ago when I came across a photograph Of a hockey team from Sandhurst, Um, and I discovered after five minutes Googling that five had lived and five had died. And although obviously um, one has always had an interest in the First World War as far as your own relatives are concerned, I that really brought it home. And then one thing led to another, um, a lot of other things, um, and really it's taken over my life since then. Um, And as far as this particular topic is concerned. Um, I was researching in the British newspaper archive um, for, for cases where officers were appearing in civil courts um, for a talk entitled Officers in Trouble. Um, and I came across a young man called Wilfred Marsden, um, who in January 1916 was charged with the criminal offence of gross indecency with a male person, um, which in his case meant having sex with other men on four occasions. He was found guilty. And when the judge gave him the maximum sentence of two years imprisonment with hard labour, he nearly fainted and had to be helped from the dock. It obviously came as tremendous shock. I wondered whether it was firstly, whether it was unusual for an officer to receive the maximum sentence for consensual sex between men and also if any other officers had been charged with this offence. And if so, what had happened to them?
0: So what exactly was the legal position uh, on homosexuality? Now, we are, I think if I'm correct, um, it was made legal or decriminalised or whatever the term is in the 1960s. But what was, this, what was the situation on the eve of the First World War?
1: Well, um, since the 1880s, since 1885, um, when the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed, Section 11 of that stated that quote, a male person who in public or in private procures or attempts to procure the commission by any male person of any act of gross indecency shall be liable to be imprisoned for a period of not exceeding two years with or without hard labour. And these penalties are repeated exactly in the manual of military law. Um, And so, as I said, it's important to notice that this criminalised sex between men in private as well as in public um, and um, so it, consensual sex was just as much a crime as one where one partner had paid the other for
0: sex. One thing that strikes me, was it not illegal even earlier in the reign of Victoria? That's what that's what I've wondered, why it's sort of been suddenly being criminalised in the 1880s. I would have thought the Victorians would have had a, a strong moral tone against it from the 1850s.
1: Uh, well, it had, it had always been viewed with considerable hostility. Um, But the particular feature of the of this law was that it specifically criminalised acts in private. Um, That's that's the that's the thing that makes the difference. So that before that, obviously, um, for a long time, um, of course, people were actually put to death for it. Um, But they, as it were, everybody always had to be caught in the act. Or you know, out in the street or something. Um, whereas this time, it actually says acts in private. Um, of course, for one thing, this really did create a blackmailers' charter.
0: So let's let's turn to um, how many servicemen. Or oh, I start that question again. Do you have any idea how many servicemen may have been attracted to other men?
1: Well, um, this is a very obviously very very difficult question to answer, um, and I spent quite a bit of time looking at various surveys. Um, done today of men who identify as being gay, gay or bisexual, um, and um, the percentage of UK men identifying in this way varies between 1% and 10%. Um, you take do your survey and you take your choice. So if we take the lower estimate of 1%, and since 4 million British men served in the First World War, 1% of that is 40,000. Um, you know, even if we say it was much less than that, that it was only half a percent of men who saw themselves in that way, it's still, you know, thousands of men. So it does seem possible that many servicemen might have felt attracted to other men, whether or not they acted on those feelings.
0: And is there any evidence um, before the war in 1914 of any um, queer activity, quotes unquote, amongst uh, soldiers?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, there's a great deal of evidence from before the war of working class men um, either having relationships with each other or with wealthier men, sometimes um, for money and sometimes just out of affection. Um, and this is this is really been um, br- brought to light by the research of Professor Matt Holbrook. Um, but as far as soldiers were concerned, the brigade of guards are the, are the ones you need to look at because there's just so much evidence. Um, Of course, they're based in London because they are the monarch's personal guards and they are the iconic British soldiers. However, many guardsmen were earning extra by making themselves sexually available um, um, in Hyde Park, Marble Arch, Waterloo and Victoria. And one actually commented to one of those intrepid Victorian commentators, um, though, of course, we do it for money, we also do it because we really like it. And there's lots of evidence of older guardsmen actually um, sort of encouraging new recruits to make money in this way. I mean, I was absolutely staggered reading about this. Yeah. And these relationships could become really affectionate and maintained over months or years.
0: And what about further up the social scale in the middle and aristocratic classes?
1: Uh, Well, the only case that I... um, I know involving an officer, and it is really controversial, I know, is that of General Sir Hector MacDonald, who was a national hero, who shot himself after accusations were made about his behaviour in Sri Lanka. Um, But there are people who very strongly say that these accusations weren't true. So, you know, Um, however, there is lots of other evidence about queer relationships um, amongst the wealthy. Um, the police accidentally discovered a male brothel in Cleveland Street near Tottenham Court Road Um, and basically um, when they looked through the client details they were just lots and lots of well-known famous wealthy people including Lord Arthur Somerset who was a very close friend and general fixer for the Prince of Wales Um, and in 1902 Um, there was a big scandal of which the details are still very kind of murky, involving the liberal peer, Lord Battersea, and a network of other men. Um, And a lot of stuff involving with this was the paperwork was actually destroyed uh, before it could go into the National Archives. But of course, I mean, um, the ones that everybody knows about uh, are the sexual preferences of artists and writers, such as Edward Carpenter. Um, you know, who founded the Iranian movement. I, I may have got, I can never say that word. Um, and of course, Oscar Wilde. Um, and Wilde's writings and the work of artists like Aubrey Beardsley were seen as really corrupting and evil. And Wilde, of course, eventually served a prison sentence.
0: And what were the broad societal attitudes towards male homosexuality before the war?
1: Generally, really, really, really negative. Uh, Male-to-male attraction was believed by many to be a form of mental illness and some men were forced to undergo what we would now call conversion therapy uh, with about as much success as it seems to have today. Um, There was also a really important political dimension, which of course was going to become even more so during the war, because despite cases in Britain like the ones I've mentioned just now, homosexuality was seen as being particularly a German vice. Um, This um, was particularly the case after political opponents of the Kaiser exposed Prince Philip von Uhlenberg, one of his closest advisers, as being queer, and a number of senior army officers who'd been part political associates of Eulenburg were also convicted for homosexuality. I should also like to say the French also believed it was a German vice. Um, And um, I found an extract from a French novel online, which shows this honest, honest French looking absolutely horrified as, as a German leaps on him with sort of scary eyes. Oh,
0: national stereotypes there coming to the fore. Absolutely. So did the outbreak of war affect the sort of general negative attitude towards, towards gay people?
1: Well, um, I, uh, it's very difficult to be certain exactly how people were feeling about that in 1914. But there was, of course, a very, very strong feeling that volunteering to serve really proved a man's masculinity. And this was really stressed in sort of posters and propaganda of the time. You can really see it that um, it's seen as sort of proof of your manhood, and um, and you will be, you've got these strong young men, and they're fighting off to war, and they're really male. Um, And it's also very, very noticeable um, when conscription is introduced in 1916. uh, Both cartoonists and political commentators repeatedly depict conscientious objectors as being effete weaklings who are not real men, even claiming that they were in love with the Germans. there is an astonishing series of um, cartoons of conscientious objectors relating to this and the 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 sort of depiction as Germans who are clearly about to do something very very rude with their rifles um, to the conscience is baffling really. Before we get into
0: some of the cases that you've uh, been researching, where did you find your evidence?
1: Well, um, I started with the court-martial registers. Um, I examined all the surviving records of convicted officers and those of any other ranks named in their trials. Um, And then for comparison, I went through the British newspaper archive for reports of civil prosecutions for gross indecency, I took the whole period 1908 to 1922, so I allowed four years each side of the war for comparison to see if there was, um, whether the war affected these prosecutions at all.
0: And what was your headline finding?
1: There, There was a really, really obvious marked increase, both in the number of prosecutions and in the severity of sentencing in both civil and military courts during the war, with a particular peak in 1916. Is it possible to unwrap
0: that and give us a bit more detail on some of some of those cases and, and maybe why this was peaking in 1916?
1: Right, so I've, I've thought about this a lot, um, and I'm sure there's going to be room for argument, um, which I'd be very glad to hear. Um, so in the civil courts, to start with, both before and after the war nearly all the men brought up for gross indecency with another man were acquitted whereas during the war there were almost no acquittals um, so a total during the war from the court martial records 23 officers were court-martialed for gross indecency now 10 of these court-martials took place in 1916 and of these eight went to prison six with hard labor and five received the maximum sentence of two years. Now, in all the rest of the war, only six officers went to prison. None got maximum sentence, and only three got it with hard labour. Besides imprisonment, all these officers were cashiered, that is, lost their rank as officers, and forfeited all their medals, including gallantry awards.
0: How does this compare with the situation before the war and immediately after the war? This is talking just
1: about, um, court martials again. So we've got no, no officers at all were court martialed for gross indecency between 1908 and 1913. And only five between 1919 and 1922, none of whom were sent to prison. So it just, it's, it's not, there's nothing before and afterwards. As soon as the war's over, very, very rapidly
0: prosecutions just drop off again massively. And, So if there seems to be a particular effort to target gay officers in 1916, why do you think this was?
1: Well, I've thought about this a great deal. Um, And um, I had an article published on this in um, Stand 2 last December. And I really, really was hoping that people would come back and argue with me. And I'm, I'm very happy if they would like to choose to do so. Um, my suggestion is that given that many regular and territorial officers had become casualties in the autumn of 1914, I would suggest that the army was concerned to con- ensure that an officer corps, obviously much bigger than they may now need many more officers, and a vast majority of those um, consist of the obviously the survivors, but many newly promoted middle class schoolboys and white collar workers. And I think they were really worried about the quality of what they'd now got. It was obviously they would be very worried that um, a queer officer would not be truly masculine and thus would not be able to maintain discipline. Um, I suggest that the 1916 trials uh, were intended as a a decimation, um, obviously, a, a military thing where you've got a small group of individuals singled out for punishment in order to terrify others into um doing doing what they're supposed to do
0: and would you go as far to say that this was actually an organized campaign
1: yes i would um i I found it amazing really so um Evidence from service records, even though these have been filleted, you do get odd bits which are just astonishing, um, shows that individuals were observed and followed by the Metropolitan Police at the request of the military police from late 1914 onwards, which suggests that they were first identified um, as likely to be queer and then further detailed evidence of them having sexual encounters was sought. So, for instance, eight charges were brought against Alfred Boyd, a captain in the Territorials, dating from December 1914 to July 1915. And just as an example of the degree of detail in these charges, one stated that he'd had sex in a bedroom in a flat on the Edgware Road. Boyd protested at his trial that this wasn't true. And the prosecution replied that although it had actually taken place in the bathroom, this was irrelevant. I mean, you're just golly. Um, he also, um, Boyd also petitioned against his um, his imprisonment. And he, when he was first arrested and held at um, Wandsworth Barracks, um, he, he stated Stated that he knew that there were a considerable number of other officers being held there on the same charge and that would fit in with the timing that we know that they were arrested. In George Tildesley's trial, the exact dimensions and appearance of the semen stains he'd left were measured and described. If this seems excessive though, we have to remember the police were investigating it as a criminal offence and gathering information as they would for any other crime.
0: And is there any other evidence that might suggest it was an organised campaign?
1: Well, um, I was very interested to find that the medal cards of all officers charged in 1916 have the label Special List written on them, showing that they were all viewed as belonging to a particular category. And and secondly, there's a very interesting exchange of two letters between two War Office officials who um, were referring to the group. It's in the service file of one of the men concerned. When these officers completed their prison sentences, they were liable to conscription in 1916, obviously, 1917, 1918, like anybody else. So they went straight from prison to serve in the ranks. Um, One war office official, referring to this group as the Dirty Brigade, was concerned about whether they would be targeted and attacked by other soldiers. And his colleague replied that the Dirty Brigade would have to work out their own salvation. In other words, if they got beaten to a
0: pulp, you know, it was tough. Before we get onto some of the uh, details of the men in 1916, where do you think this was coming up coming from? Because it sounds a bit of a conspiracy theory in some ways, and it sort of seems to be that there's there's forces moving in the, in the background. Is there is there anything else to suggest where this might come from, or was it maybe just officers op- operating on their own quotes initiative?
1: Well, as I said. These two, the, there are just these two letters for, um, and clearly these two officials in the War Office, who were, of course, obviously army officers themselves, they, they both know what they're writing about. They know what the Dirty Brigade is. Um, and um, so there's clearly been correspondence between them before. Uh, and the fact that the, the Metropolitan Police were involved from such an early stage Report following and reporting on these men. Um, I thought was really interesting that somebody decided that it was worthwhile involving the Met who obviously had the experience, um, in following, um, and tracking, um, homosexuals in London. Um, the other, there's one further little piece of information, um, was that one service record, because you, these service records have, are, Be very thoroughly gone through some people's they're just not there at all so it's only i can only work from bits and pieces but one service record has got a note written on the front cover you know where people write comments over the course of time so this was written in the 1950s and somebody writes and says do we need to keep this group of records still labeled as sealed for a hundred years because i don't think we do but there's no reply to it but i'm like This group of records say, so are we just talking about this man's file, in which case the only thing he did wrong was this or was it like all these service records were kept? It's frustrating. I would love to find more evidence, but so far without success. I'm hoping to find more other ranks records. And
0: anyway, we will just have to see. Well, let, let's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. But let's let's turn to some of the individuals. It's so easy to forget these are actual living, breathing people who today would do nothing wrong and we would see no problem with their behaviour. But in 1916, they were treated as criminals. So who were these individuals?
1: Yes, um, it's it's important to just think about how devastating these prosecutions were. So the highest ranking officer to be court-martialed in 1916 was Fred Llewellyn who was a regular army major in the 8th Battalion of the Ox and Bucks. I mean, this is just so... You just think this deserves to have like a play written about it. On the 14th of April, 1916, he was appointed as temporary colonel and commanding officer of his battalion. And exactly a week later, he was court-martialed, found guilty of gross indecency and sentenced to two years with hard labour. So clearly... He, who, whoever was appointing him, let alone Fred himself, was not expecting this to happen a week a week earlier. It's just you're just like how you cannot imagine what that would have been for that man. It must have been utterly devastating, absolutely devastating. And it would also have really demonstrated to others that no one was immune from the full weight of the criminal and martial law as far as, as uh, this court clause was concerned. Um and uh, another person whose who's, um, um, imprisonment must have really shocked people was the court martial of Herbert Montrose Singer of the 7th Battalion of Dragoon Guards, who's was a pre-war regular army officer. Um, and Herbert was the eldest son of Paris Singer, whose father Isaac had made, um, was a billionaire from the Singer sewing machine. Um he P- Paris Singer was fabulously rich, a friend of royalty, and moved in the highest ranks of society on both sides of the Atlantic. And his son received two years with hard labour. I mean, you just think that would really, really, really have gone sent shockwaves, wouldn't it? Now, um, Herbert Singer had attended Marlborough College. Uh, with Wilfred Marsden, who I mentioned at the start of the talk today. In fact, they were in the same house at school and in the same year, so they would have known each other very well. The Marsdens obviously were nothing like as rich as the singers were, but Wilfred did grow up in a Georgian mansion near Chichester, which had seven servants. So he, as I've said before, he too received two years with hard labour. But uh, they, they weren't all from wealthy backgrounds. Um, by any means. Um, Harry Runnels was a motor engineer who got a commission only 10 days after joining up um, in the Royal Naval Armoured Car Division. It wasn't at all unusual in that particular to get a commission in the Royal Naval Armoured Car Division really quickly because they were desperate for people with experience with cars. Um, But in March 1916, nonetheless, He was court-martialed and went to prison for 12 months. Um, Thomas Wilson had been a shop assistant in the department store of Marshall and Snellgrove. Um, He'd been acquitted for gross indecency, but in 1915, which was after he'd become an officer, but was found guilty at a second court-martial in 1916. Um, And I, I do rather... This one shows the real power of perseverance. So Guy Addison was an actor who had tried to join up in the Boer War when he was very young. And again, he was rejected in the Boer War. He then tried to join up again in 1914. And on both occasions, he was rejected with exactly the same phrase, not being likely to make an efficient soldier. And that was immediately as soon as he arrives virtually at the recruiting station. And I wonder whether he appeared to be... um. As an actor, whether he appeared to have a manner and a style, um, you know, um, I was a bit bit of a um, an effeminate guy, which this army didn't like. But nevertheless, and there's no clue in his service record how he did it, he is an officer in the Black Watch in 1915 and, um, I'm afraid, received a six-month sentence in 1916. Um, George Tildesley claimed at his trial that he'd shared a bed with another man simply because... There was no other accommodation available, Um, but the prosecution immediately pointed out this was undermined by the fact that he had shared a bed with other men on three other occasions. Um, Finally, it is possible that some of those charged were not guilty. So Percy Spackman claimed that the two officers who gave evidence against him were themselves having sexual relations, but the court didn't believe him. And Roy Falsey, this is just a baffling case, went to the police in January 1916, claiming a Russian called Maurice Rotfarb was blackmailing him. The court decided there was no case and Rotfarb was released. Falsy was sentenced for gross indecency in March and received 12 months. Now, he doesn't have a surviving service record, unfortunately. It's a very odd story, though, because the commonest cause for blackmail at this time was being queer. But if so, why would Falsy have gone for help from the police? It doesn't make any sense.
0: You mentioned that the number of acquittals in both civil and military courts was was higher before and after. Um, sorry, was both higher uh, and ah, start that again. You (laughs) you. You've mentioned that the number of acquittals of both civil and military courts was higher before both and but before the war and after the war, than during it. Are there any significant variations in the harshness of sentences that men received? And if so, can you suggest any reasons for this? Yes,
1: yeah, sentences varied really, really widely um, in both civil and military courts from a fine or an order to seek medical help. Two, of course, prison sentences of various degrees. Um, the main reason why um, some defendants got lighter sentences was simply that they had a good defence lawyer, and of course, that's a privilege reserved for those who can afford to pay his fees, um, and that would be only um, middle class or upper class people. Uh, lawyers would put forward various excuses. The most common was that their client was a drunk and remembered nothing. And another was that he was ill or injured, which had changed their nature. Um, I mean, you do think during the war, there's like um, when you've got somebody who actually got off because he said, his lawyer said he'd suffered a shrapnel wound. And of course, the obvious thing to say to that is, well, millions of other people got shrapnel wounds and they didn't go off and have sex with other men. You know, so it makes no sense at all. Anyway. um, But in addition, defence lawyers would offer testimonials to their clients excellent character and great respectability um also now all the cases we've been talking about up to now including the officers court-martialed in 1916 all, all involve consensual sex between two adult men um now the age of consent in 1916 during the war same as it is now as was 16 which i was quite surprised to discover There are no court martials involving sex between an adult and an underage boy, but there's many, many, many civil trials, including some involving officers during the war. And it's very clear that in these cases, men were much more likely to get light sentences, that is for having sex with boys, than if they had consensual sex
0: with another man. Can you give some examples that illustrate some of these cases?
1: Well, this the case of of Lieutenant Henry Orpen illustrates absolutely all the um, points I've just been making. So in in 1915, Orpen was on trial for what was described as a violent assault on an 11-year-old boy. And nobody denied, throughout the trial, the defence made no effort to deny that this had happened or that it was violent. His lawyer explained that before the war, Orpen had, quote, spent time with the Cambridge Medical Mission Settlement in South London and took part in the sports and entertainments among the Boy Scouts and young men, unquote. The judge described this as being the life of a very noble character. Um, I do think today we might look at this behaviour somewhat more suspiciously. Um, The lawyer also said that as Orpen had been injured by shrapnel, he this had removed his full moral strength. He submitted testimonials from the head of the medical mission and Orpen's own family, and he was bound over. Um, he was originally sentenced to be cashiered, but bafflingly, General Leslie Rundle, who commander in chief of the Central Force and Eastern Command, wrote to the War Office asking that be permitted to resign his commission uh, rather than be cashiered, as he was quote, more sinned against than sinning. And that was allowed. I mean, what do you mean more sinned against than sinning? Absolutely baffling. Um, i just like to add, because I hate him, that in 1935, Orpen was working as a private tutor and was tried for indecent behaviour with four of his pupils following complaints from their parents. This so four different occasions. He was bound over again and told to see a specialist. There's absolutely, no doubt the sexual assault of boys was seen as much less serious. And and do we know particularly why that would be
0: in Victorian Edwardian Britain?
1: Well, I think the first thing to say there, Tom, is um, quite frankly, until really recently, it's absolutely astonishing how um, likely it was treated and how many times children um, in very, very recent times complained or tried to complain about the way that they've been treated by people who um, were in a position of authority over them or were seen as very respectable um, and they didn't get they didn't get believed um so i think the first thing is um that it's it's thought that I, I just i just think that it's just not seen as being a big problem whereas with when it's consensual sex between men there seems to be this feeling that um, they're doing something which is really against nature And you do get that a lot. But I I haven't found, there's lots of newspaper articles fulminating about how violent it is. but I haven't found anything where they're saying, yeah, well, doing this to little boys um, is terrible too. There's just not this awareness of it. Um, And it's just, I got really depressed. It's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases are against little boys and not not with men. Um, And most of the time, they're, they're just like case dismissed the more respectable the man is like um he's a he's a vicar with 20 years loyal service in the parish or a, a scoutmaster master who um, everybody knows what a wonderful influence he's been um they're just like case dismissed so I, there we go
0: I'm i'm i i do find that very odd in a time of you know when children are meant to be innocent and we have legislation yeah. coming in the nspcc being set up in the 1890s and things like that and i, I find that I suppose, maybe we shouldn't do. Um, But I just find it completely odd when you've got consenting adults doing stuff in private and the state is more interested in that than it is in protecting innocent and vulnerable lads um, from the, from predatory males um, or predatory men, rather. Um, you know, I mean, again, that's I, we don't even need to go into domestic violence in, in families, in, in marriages, etc. That, which obviously was huge at this time as well. Um, but anyway, we digress. We digress. So it appears that m- middle class men can hire a fancy lawyer and and. have the money to get them off. So what happens if I'm a working-class man and I get um, arrested and prosecuted? Could I hope for a a lighter sentence?
1: Well there was two things that would help you. First was if you had a pre-war army record. So I've got two examples of this. Um, So the first one, um, Henry Knight and George Harris were both in the Somerset Regiment and they were caught having um, sex in 1914. Um, and um, they they both received eight months without hard labour. The judge specifically said he'd given them a light sentence to avoid jeopardising Knight's pension. Um, and um, Private Frederick Butt, who was found guilty of sex with a rent boy at Gosport in 1916, was even luckier. He got only three days imprisonment with no hard labour, again because the judge said he didn't want to risk But's pre-war army pension. So that's the first way. Um, I mean, I've got other cases as well. It's it's just that, oh, well, he's he was in the army beforehand. We've got to think of that. Um, it's also noticeable that um both civil and military courts always, always assume in every case of consensual sex, one man is more guilty, um, either because he's socially superior, that's the usual thing, or sometimes because he's older. Um, and generally, the one who's more guilty. Um, I think there's a feeling that I haven't found anything about this explicitly stated, but I think it's because there's a feeling that the that person will have corrupted the other one into doing it. So generally he'll get a harsher sentence.
0: And so and, sorry, sorry, uh, sorry. So if, if I was if I'm if I'm an officer and I've been found guilty uh, in 1916 of um gross indecency and i'm sent to prison where would i be sent
1: um well they all went to either wormwood scrubs or wandsworth prisons um and some of them had actually been brought back from the front for their court martials, um and they they went to prison there as well um so unfortunately i haven't found any first-hand account by any of the officers whose cases i've been investigating of course that would be the dream team but i haven't got that however 1916 was not only this the year of these trials. Of course, as everybody knows, it's all the introduction of conscription, and thus uh, many conscientious objectors ended up being sent to these exactly these two prisons and wrote really eloquent accounts of their experiences. Um, so for the first month, hard labor prisoners were in solitary confinement for 23 out of 24 hours in their bleak cells, and the conschy Edward Mason described listening to um, an, another prisoner, overcome by sheer terror and despair, screaming out, oh God, oh God, talk to me, say anything, only for God's sake, talk to me. And another one, tearing at his face with his nails until the, until it bled, then collapsing in tears at the thought of two years of this life. So you can see it was
0: pretty terrifying. So was it? why was it so terrifying, and was it particularly worse than other prisoners? or other prison experience well it's not
1: so much brutal um i mean obviously if one thinks about conditions in and many prisons today where there is obviously torture and um things like that as it's designed to isolate prisoners as much as possible this was due to thinking that had begun during the early early 19th century led by people like jeremy bentham and the idea was that prisoners should be isolated Um, and forced to think about what they'd done as much as possible. Um, Its aim was to literally break any spirit of rebellion, but also individuality, and to crush any chance of enjoyment, mutual support
0: or pleasure. Not very nice. Sounds a bit depressing.
1: (laughs) It really, really was. I mean, um, I'm currently, because I've got so fascinated by this, I'm currently now working on an article on... um, Wormwood Scrubs in 1916, which will go into all of this um, in a lot of detail, because I was just like, oh, my God. Um, So men were addressed only by their cell number, for instance, B254. Now, what this means is that you're in wing B in Wormwood Scrubs, you're on the second floor and you're in cell 54. Um, and that's the only way you'll be addressed so cells had one window which was right up against the ceiling so prisoners couldn't look out and they had a a three-legged stool to sit on which was very uncomfortable Uh, but if they stood on it to look out they'd be punished um if they sat they the bed which was made of planks it was uh it was just loose planks laid on a um a wood surround and they had to at the when they got up in the morning they had to Um, put this bed up against the wall. They didn't have mattresses. They weren't allowed to sit on the bed either. Um, They were also punished if they spoke to each other, if they sang or if they whistled, if they shared any food with other prisoners or failed to call a warder, sir. Um, I mean, there's a massive list of things that they were punished for, um, which just seemed to us to be just awful. After eight weeks, hey, they could receive a visitor one visitor and receive and write one letter. Um, And after that, every six weeks for each, of course, the letters will be, um, both their letters sent in by family or friends and their letter out will be censored. Um, Regular prisoners wore white clothes with black arrows and court-martial prisoners wore black with white arrows. When I first discovered this, I was amazed because my idea was Prisoners wearing clothing with arrows on was an invention of the dandy comic. I didn't believe that it had ever really happened, but it was. It was. And of course, the court martial prisoners really stood out because they were wearing the other way round. They wore black with white arrows. And when you arrived, your scalp and face completely shaved. Um, hard labour at these two prisons meant sewing mailbags. And I thought, oh, because I was expecting them to be breaking rocks or something. But actually, sewing mailbags was much more unpleasant than it sounds, because you're working with this very rough sacking. Um, And it did tear their hands. And of um, of course, no middle or upper class men would ever have done anything like this before, and many of them complained. They'd never even sewed anything. Um, and so their hands get lots and lots of cuts, and all the mail bags have got handprint, bloody handprints. And their one conchie comments that he always, after the wars, used to look at postmen and think, "Has your bag got my bloody handprints round the inside?" Um, they would have to do this for twelve hours a day. Um, you can see also why, how, well, I think it's stunning, really, how many conscientious objectors became ardent prison reformers after their release and did achieve remarkable things to improve conditions. But back to our officers anyway. Sorry.
0: So back to, yes, back to our officers. So if, I, if I've i been an officer, I've been in Wandsworth, Wandsworth Prison, which I have been in um, in a previous job. Um, when I was working with the Department of Health, um, but that's another story. And I, I used to live quite near Wandsworth Prison. Um, anyway, that is a, that's an aside. So, if I'm released from Wandsworth Prison and I'm conscripted immediately back into the army, as you've or, already suggested, to do time in the ranks, what happened to me? How did people? How did officers um, experience this time? And and what was their sort of fate, so to speak?
1: Well, I wish I could trace all of them. Um, I can't, but some of them performed extremely well, which I I just think is such a tribute to what their personalities and determination must have been like. So Herbert Singer, who was the son of the multimillionaire, as I said before, joined the Royal West Kent. And during the Third Battle of Albert in August 1918, he was on the spot, promoted to sergeant and awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal. I'd absolutely love to know what he did but he hasn't got a surviving service record. And it um, and it, there's no mention of it in the Battalion War Diary. It's just written like that on his medal card. So that's where I know it from. Um, but it's just written out, promoted on the spot to sergeant. Um, so, it, it you know, they obviously, it was remarkable, but I don't know what happened. Percy Spackman joined the French Foreign Legion and was avoided the Croix de Guerre. Both Roy Falsey and Wilfred Marsden rejoined the Royal Flying Corps. And rose to the rank of sergeant pilot we're a small but select group um, who um, really i think had quite a tough time it's quite tough being a sergeant pilot anyway because you didn't like go you didn't join the mess with the officers or anything like that but you still had all the same responsibilities um Falsy was awarded the dcm for exceptional bravery and uh, Wilfred marsden became a pilot trainer and I do feel, oh my goodness, that must have been a very scary role. Um, but he, obviously a key role in the new RAF and shows just how well qualified they both were. Um, in the Second World War, Wilfred Marsden joined up again, lying about his age to do so. And in 1940, he was given a commission, um, but someone uncovered his past conviction and he was forced to resign. Um, as far as their personal lives were concerned, for most of them. I've just not been able to find enough evidence to be sure what happened. Two committed suicide and whether or not these deaths could be attributed to their sexuality, I just don't know. Um, Two did form long term partnerships with other men, um, without doubt, because they lived with them for like 30 years and then they left everything in their will to this other man. So they actually made it, which is lovely. Um, Some were shunned by their families and some were clearly um, continued to have warm support from them. I'm hoping to try to find out something about um, some of the other ranks who were court-martialed for gross indecency. It's just frustrating. Um, you spend so much time digging around and um, you, you just can't always find the information you want.
0: No, but you've you've uncovered a great deal. And how do you reflect on, on all this and what would you sort of say in conclusion?
1: Well, obviously, recent decades have seen a great deal, to, to say a truism, put it mildly, have seen a great reassessment of many aspects of the Great War. Um, A successful campaign was waged to win posthumous pardons for some of those shot for desertion, and conscientious objectors are now much more respected for upholding their beliefs. However, the harsh punishments that some servicemen, officers and other ranks suffered for having consensual sex have largely passed unnoticed. Um, I'd really... Um, really would like to think that my research would lead to more understanding and sympathy for these men, um, for whom this um, led to lifelong consequences, in some cases obviously completely ruined their lives. And I'd particularly like the LGBTQ plus community to take ownership of this area of their own history. Um, and if eventually that somebody was able to take a wrist to the off with a little pride flag, that would be really, really nice.
0: And my final question is, where can people find out more about this subject and your research?
1: Uh, Well, I had an article on this published in um, the December uh, (laughs) 2022 issue of Stand 2, Western Front Journal, um, and that is accessible on the Western Front Association website, Um, and obviously if... if, um, People can't get access to that. I'm happy for them to contact me and I'll, I'll send them the article. Um, but I'm still beavering away and who knows, perhaps it'll lead to another article.
0: Francis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition.